Well, this morning, sermon title is a question, very simple question, and it's anticipated in what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And it is this, the gospel, foolishness or wisdom, foolishness or wisdom. You found, didn't you, in that passage that we read, the term foolishness and the term wisdom frequently occurring. Sometimes wisdom, when it was used of the world, God, as it were, is almost putting that in sort of inverted commas, the world's wisdom. It thinks it's wise, there's the fact. But is it? And today, have you found the true wisdom of God yet? Because that is the gospel. My friend, that is the gospel. That is what God accounts wiser than all the world has, stronger than anything that the world could bring. That's which looks to some so insubstantial. It's the very thing that can give us hope for heaven, a reality that can bring to us the forgiveness of our sin. Well, Paul is here very much engaged in his message and very much having to battle it out with Corinthian culture that he represents there, the truth of God's word, and is having to make headway with it because, sadly, the church in Corinth has been much infected by the culture of the age, and particularly the culture of the Corinthian age of that day. The world, ah, the world, dear friends, the world, that aspect of wider culture that pits itself against the reality, the truth of God. That set of ideas and practices that almost we do without thinking of it, but which are opposed to God's truth. Do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. Different ethics, different worldview. Seeing things, seeing eternity differently, if it's seen at all. Here is scripture opening up to us realities beyond this world, beyond this material existence, revealing to us the existence of this great God. No beginning, no end. One who is just and holy and upright, of whom we would have no knowledge. Unless we had a Bible and the Holy Spirit given to us to understand these things. The world knows nothing of that. Doesn't think of that. Doesn't think of life beyond the grave. Reckons it's all to be accomplished here. And that everything that we need, everything for the flourishing of our humanity is here. This world is all that counts in the final analysis. Well, yes, it allows for some religion. Indeed, Corinth allowed for a lot of religion. But it was all wrong religion, false religion. Rather than bringing knowledge, it just reinforced ignorance. And today, our culture, oh, much of it is pretty atheistic, it has to be said, but no, it will allow for a measure of religion. But as long as it doesn't become too serious and too important, as long as it doesn't become too relevant by talking about your sin and mine, and about death, and about judgment. Oh, it doesn't want that. People at Belper yesterday, they didn't want that too much. And 
isn't it there what so we in england say don't we if we don't really want to engage i'm all right we don't really think about what we're saying and if we thought about it for long enough we'd have to conclude we're not all right at all but uh, we're all right uh when we pass by we want religion on our terms that's what they want in corinth on, on their terms and those terms were pretty wretched terms we'll see that in just in a minute but the world would say that status is important they may try and contradict that but really it is when you really find out when you scratch beneath the surface that's important your achievements and accomplishments and be able to parade them and people sometimes fake them because they realize how important those things are so they they, they fake them and the world values what you wear values your clothing and attire Well, we saw, didn't we, just there, judgment on the so-called Wagatha Christie trial. And uh, that turned out to be disappointing for one of the wives of one of the England football players. But my word, you look how well attired that she is. And the judge was careful in the words that she used to describe the, the testimony of this particular woman. And uh, very measured as judges have to be, but the implications were devastating. Uh, there was no truth that it was all... Uh, a gotten-up story. My, how she dresses is, is meant to astonish. And the shades that she's wearing, if I knew more about it, I'd probably tell you how much they cost. But uh, there it is. That's what the world is impressed with, how you're looking, your appearance, and, uh, and your style, and, uh, and what your clothing's, clothing is. Again, I say, one of the contenders for the leadership of the Conservative Party. Somewhat taken to task because he's wearing shoes, I think, costing 400 50 pounds or so. Well, that's a pair of shoes indeed. If you can match that, we'll be sure we're interested to hear from you. But there it was. That's valued. That is esteemed. And in Corinth, well, it was philosophy there. And the more kind of obscure it was, the more difficult to understand, well, the better it was. And if you could deliver it with eloquence and with a kind of effortless delivery, well, that was impressing. Real oratory. They valued that. They didn't value Paul so much that his speech seemed impressive, unimpressive. And his person, rather unassuming, didn't sort of convey something significant and important. And they began to devalue the message that he brought. Oh, and coupled to that, for all of the fine talk, and isn't this so, all of the fine philosophy, for all of those impenetrable books written on postmodernism and the rest of it there. But the behavior that goes with it is just plain immorality. So what was there in Corinth? All of these philosophers with their fine words, but it was just the most sordid of immorality. And so in our own day, why people read these incredible books with incredible terminology and it's dense with hard to understand jargon. But when you boil it down, what's the behavior that goes with it? Well, it's the same old, same old, and it's immorality again, and it's all of the, the wretchedness, the creativity there of the defiled and perverse human heart. Sadness. And there is Paul having to try to win back the church, which is being overly influenced by the world, and win them back. And reaffirm to them that gospel, though the culture may say it's foolishness, is actually the wisdom of God. Where are you with that today? How do you account 
the message, which we'll go on to look at now. But the first heading is this, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Well, that's a deceptively simple question, and there's a fuller answer than I'll be able to give you this morning to it. But if we could, if we just bring it, bring it down there to it as a bare essentials, it's the message of the cross, the one who died on the cross. And why the one who died on the cross did die on the cross. The gospel is the explanation for that. And beyond that explanation conveys with it there an instruction because there are implications of it. And those implications bear down on you and on me and require of us actually a response. The message of the cross, well, we didn't read it, but it's there in verse 17. First Corinthians chapter one, this is Paul saying he wasn't sent to baptize people, but to preach. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with words of Christ, word, wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. That's what he wanted people to hear about, the cross of Christ. Not baptism, however important baptism is, and Paul would have stressed it's important, but there's something comes before that, and it's the cross of Christ. It's the gospel. And he goes on then in verse 18, which we did read, for the message of the cross, there it is again, is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That's the contrast. This gospel, this message of the cross, of, of Jesus Christ crucified, why it's the message that saves. You can see why it's important. You can see why the implications of it are immense. Well, we can see more, verse 21, Paul develops his argument for since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom, its wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. What's the message preached? It's about the Lord Jesus Christ and it's about him being crucified. And in case we had missed that again, first Corinthians chapter one, verse 23, there it is. We preach. Christ crucified. So we preach Paul's message and the implications of that message and what it means for you and for me. And they're just casting your eye into chapter two. And in verse two, for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Didn't want eloquence, not the oratory that people in Corinth prize so much, not some sort of towering figure some impressively dressed orator who, who would convince you simply by who he was. None of that, he said. None of that. The message is the only message that is to be heard. No distraction from it. It's Jesus Christ and him crucified. And nothing should empty it of its power. So there is the gospel. It is about the Lord Jesus Christ dying upon the cross, and the reasons for that. And it assumes something. It assumes a context. And first, you might say, it assumes the context of where we are, that God exists. God exists. God. God who has all life in himself, who is almighty, omniscient, knowing everything, power beyond anything. There is nothing that is too difficult for him. 
He has no beginning. Nobody created him. And he doesn't have to borrow from anybody wisdom to know what's best to do in this situation or that. He knows it all, possesses it all. And in that sphere of existence that leaves us breathless, out of our depth. So this is the God with whom we have to do. And he's a God of goodness, a God of mercy, a God of holiness, a God of justice. And he possesses those attributes there, not with some limitation upon them, as though at some point or other he, he, he reach a situation He's not quite sure how, how goodness will apply there or, or how justice will apply there or how one is to be holy, completely and totally holy while dealing with this situation or, or that situation. That he can do all of that without any impairment, without any impeachment of any of his glorious attributes. And that is just beyond us, friends. We, in a very pale and fickle way, may show a measure of fairness and justice in our treatment of others. We may have a degree of recoil from sinfulness and, and evil, but it is a very, very inadequate response. God it is found in its purest and most refined way that there is no improvement that could be made. Perfection. And the gospel assumes that God exists. And it tells us that you and I will meet him one day. And the gospel tells us this as part of the context of it. For else, what Christ has done upon the cross will be meaningless to us. It tells us that you and I have fallen short of the glory of that God. Sure, we can't match him by being eternal. We, we are creatures. We're mortal creatures. We, we can't match him in being everywhere at, at every time or being all powerful that we can create the heavens and the earth merely by speaking. But in those aspects where, yes, it's conceivable that we could be like him, as mentioned, that we could be upright and just, yes. And we could, in our imagination, perhaps be that to the greatest extent possible. We could conceive of that. Or that we could be loving, that there could be within us such a, an instinctive response of love. And that we would know when to love and how that love should be shaped, when there should be sternness and justice mixed with it, and how we could maintain ourselves in this world unspotted by it, that nothing that was infected the Corinthian church would infect us. Well, we could conceive of it. But my dear friends, you and I, we know our own hearts too well. We get nowhere near it. We get nowhere near it. And though we hold those ideals, and sure, there's something to be said for that. We can't match them. We can't live up to them. And we fall short of them. That we're not fair in our dealings with people. And that we're not loving. And that we're not holy. That we have unclean thoughts and ugly thoughts and lustful thoughts and covetous thoughts. And we can't control them. They're there with us and they arise instinctively. We don't have to be taught about them. They're just there. And we lament them, and we should, we grieve over them, and we should, and they show us that we are ruined. Dear friends, we are ruined. We just cannot think in the way that God would have us think. We cannot will in the way that God would have us will. Our affections do not reach to the, the right objects and in the right proportion and with the right intensity. We've fallen, and we are ruined. 
And when we look in the light of God's word, we have to agree with his verdict. That there is that God of glory and great heights and his, his laws that are perfect and us breaking all those laws, breaking all his commandments. And we're undone. And that state of being undone gets only worse when we die and go from this place. And there's something to happen to us this side of the grave, then what we are merely gets confirmed the other side. And we meet with this living God, eyes a flame of fire. We see him, we just sung, on his judgment throne. That's going to be an awesome sight. That is going to be something else. And if nothing's happened to us this side of the grave, and we go with all of our ruin, and we go with all the failure, the moral absence within us, the inability to love God indeed as we should have done, to love our neighbours we should have done. It's all waiting to meet with us. This God of perfect knowledge, God of perfect understanding, so holy understands all of the deceptions of the human heart, will condemn us. And the condemnation that is already over us we may be asleep to this, but it hangs over us. There catches up with us and we're then banished and we're excluded and we're cast out of all of the favor and the kindness and goodness of God to experience it never again. Never again to even feel the things of common grace like the warming sunshine or the refreshing rain or any of the benefits that there are of human companionship. Gone. And all that blessing removed, dear friends, that is hell. That is what is that place that's called the second death. It's not a kind of end point. It's a continuing experience of regret and of absence of the favor of God, unfulfillment of lack, hunger, thirst, quenching, unquenched thirst. Oh, friends, that's is what awaits man in his sin. And the gospel announces that. It tells us that. Tells you and I that. Tells you of this great God. And it tells you of our ruin in the eyes of this perfect being. But then it tells you this about the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? That here is a message of such hope, of such richness, such goodness. That this great God, who, if he followed simply there, the rules of justice, say the end, sentence given, finished with, that humanity, go from me, you displease me. He says, no, mercy, yes, mercy shall triumph over judgment. And it will happen because God himself will act on our behalf. We couldn't do it ourselves. We cannot raise ourselves somehow, undo all the damage, and then live from here on forevermore in a, in a state of perfect righteousness by our own efforts and doing. Simply will never happen. But God sent his own son. Sent him in the likeness of man. That's something, isn't it? This God we described who, whose being is unfathomable to us, how can we understand someone who's, who, who's everywhere, has no beginning, no end? True. And now take this, that he became a man. That, that he then shared in our human nature. 
and could be seen just as easily as you and I are able to see each other. And perhaps afterwards there, we'll speak to each other over a cup of tea and coffee or whatever, that we could have done that with him. Could have stood with him, uh, been near him, heard his voice, touched him, if we will, watched him as he, he ate, like we eat, seen him asleep as he needed to sleep. So this God of, of infinite perfection, this God who neither slumbers nor sleeps, yet here in his Son, the Word made flesh, that he must submit to all of that, have a real humanity, live a real life, not an easy life either, but in the midst of trials and temptations and sufferings, must live that, live it thoroughly, live it fully, have 33 years of it, and take then of that pure, glorious and wonderful life that actually is perfection. That's humanity that we should be and that we're not. We look at him and his life as we read it in the Gospels. We say, we're undone. We're nowhere near where he is. And that is true. But rejoice that he did, that he did all things well, and that he pleased his father in in every word he spoke, in in every thought that arose within his, his pure breast, every Every motion, every movement, every plan, everything pleased the Father because it was excellent and it was perfect. And you would think such a life as that should just be acclaimed and and received and, and should just go on and on, emanating that perfection, doing good to all that he was doing. But the greatest good that he came to do was going to require of him his own life. It was forfeit. It was to be given up. The condemnation that is settled upon us, if we if we haven't yet found this and the reality of this, that settled upon us, it was made over to him. And by accident, but by design. Not dragging him unwillingly, fighting and shouting, I'm pure and sinless, I shouldn't have to bear the sin and punishment of others, but fully compliant in it very willing to do it, knowing it would cost, knowing it would be pain unimaginable, but prepared for it. That's the cross. That's Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the message. That's the message. That's what Paul brought to Corinth in all its sophistication and immorality. That is the message. That's the message for here, today, anywhere in the world, today. Because people are the same all over the world. As God is the same all over the world. Same expectations, same requirements. That same message that can be preached. The Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God. Bearing sin in himself. Settling the debt that we owed God. Penalty of our transgressions. He paid that. He was willing to be made an offering for sin. That is beyond our comprehension. Quite what was transacted there on the cross, what it felt like, how it bore down upon him, I am not qualified to say. I am able to say, be glad in it, that there the Father, representing there in the Godhead, God's offended nature there, the recoil against sin, the exclusion of sin, That was made over to his son. That was his to bear and experience and taste death. Something of what the second death will be. Something of what 
awaits men in their unforgiven state, well, that became his. Not just to do it for one other person, but for all the people that were in the scope of his love and that were in his view as he died upon that cross. And that's the gospel. Now, to prove that it was true, and that when the son literally expired his last, gave up his spirit, died, and a spear was thrust into his side, and John says, and I saw the the vision of the the blood and the water, he was dead. They took him and laid him in a tomb for three days. But no more than three days. He's then the body. Well, body? No, the person of Jesus Christ. Again, alive and alive forevermore and raised with, with now extra faculties, extra dimensions and powers that belong to his, his raised and glorified body. Amazed his disciples who just simply hadn't seen this coming. Hadn't believed this, hadn't believed the scriptures, which actually said that he would rise from the dead. And so God vindicated his son. So therefore, trust in him. Therefore, believe in this Christ crucified. I vindicate him. I show him approved. I will have him held forth to you, therefore. That's the way that you can come to me by looking to him and being saved, trusting in him the blood that he shed and all the glory of his being that was made over there and count all those sufferings there which we'll never understand as being in your place and mine if you believe. Look to him and be saved. That is the gospel. What is the gospel? Well, it's the best news you could ever hear, friend. What is the gospel? Well, it is the message of God. This is God's wisdom. They're pointing you. If you would know me and find my forgiveness, If you would have peace with me, know that now you're in my favor. I count you a child, dearly beloved. And only by believing in my son, dying in the place of sinners, only by believing in him, implicitly, wholeheartedly, can you ever find salvation and eternal life. Repent. That's all locked up in this, isn't it? Repent. That's who you are. That's who I am. Ruined people. Lost people lawless people, all the activity, the confusion and mayhem within, fighting against God, withdrawing its love for him, treating our neighbor ill. Repent of it. What you know of, repent of that. Repent of all that you still don't know about your hearts and I don't know about mine. Repent of it. Turn from it. See its horror. See what it's earning, condemnation. See that you need to be a different person than this to come into the presence of repent and then put your faith, your trust, your hope, all your desire in him, in this Christ and him crucified. Second heading, time we moved on, friends, the time passes. This is something to say, isn't it? The gospel rubbished. The gospel rubbished. What Paul brought to Corinth and preached, whatever, other preacher worth their salt would preach. And yes, rubbished. Foolishness. What? Are you requiring us to believe this? So for the Jews, as we see it there in verse 22, requesting a sign, and to them it's a stumbling block. Christ crucified. That their Messiah that they hoped for, 
should die an accursed death upon a tree, on the cross. Oh, I couldn't countenance that. God must have something more victorious, more splendid than that, reserved for his anointed one. It has to be something much, much stronger, more impressive than that. And so they dismissed him, dismissed him in life. Sadly, many of them, not all, some have come to faith, but many Jews still resist him. And the Greeks, well, they wanted wisdom. They wanted sophistication. They wanted something that, uh, in a way, uh, you, it was so sophisticated you couldn't understand it. So they do in Athens. We read in Acts 17, just forever telling and hearing new things. That's new to our hearing. How interesting. Not this. What? A leading, dying man upon a cross? What is that? That seems ugly. That seems debased. That seems weak. And to have him raised from the dead, that is beyond. <laughs> they they sneered at that in Athens when Paul brought them to that point and told them that God has raised this appointed judge, shown to us all that he is the one by raising him from the dead. And someone they heard that, they mocked. We read in the Bible, they mocked. Resurrection, raised from the dead. And when one preaches that out in the open air, you're, you're sure there that, well, that's falling upon ears. The same response in many hearts is arising. Oh, that's beyond, beyond what we can believe or countenance. We can't believe in that, that somebody dead comes back to life. And so it is rubbished and it is dismissed. And so the world tries to reinvent God. That's what they were doing in Athens. You read it there in Acts 17, they're reinventing him. Make him conformable to what they could feel comfortable with. And this idea of his invisibility, this idea that you couldn't behold him, that he's so elevated. Well, they try to capture him in buildings and in works of art, as though those things, making the invisible more visible, could somehow bring them nearer to him. Paul says, no, they're just like groping around in the darkness with this. They're just trying with their own minds to fathom what is beyond them. And as if he was to be there, made of human devising and art. Yet God is, people still are recreating God in their own image to make a God who is comfortable to live with, who doesn't judge sin and who doesn't declare that he will meet with us after death and that that meeting, if we're unforgiven, haven't believed the gospel, it's going to be distinctly uncomfortable. Oh no, we don't want this. We want, we can want a God we can be comfortable with. One of our brethren out on the streets yesterday preaching there. God is love. And what do people mean by that? Well, that he's not like any of these things, that he doesn't, doesn't worry about sin and that he doesn't have laws that we're expected to keep and we will be condemned for not keeping them. That he doesn't have hell and, and everlasting damnation. The pastor by said, oh, I can't believe in hell. Well, they will one day. We all will. Uh, trust we'll believe in it and see it, but not be in it. We'll be in heaven because we believe this gospel. But that's what people are doing. They're not going to go there because they're reinventing God. They're saying of themselves, basically, we're okay. That somewhere within the kind of, we're all right. There's a worry. There's, there's a bit of a fear that this may be uncomfortable. Suddenly, people from their everyday thinking and busyness have been met with eternity. And, and these things, it troubles them a bit, but they push it away. And they'll then kind of do some mind games on themselves and say, I'm okay. I'm I'm better than most people, and, and I help people, and all 
the excuses that people use there. Or modern culture, of course, says, oh, this is dreadful. You're only at your best. If you think the best of yourself, you need a good hefty dose of self-esteem, not hear this Christian message about sin. No, go easy on yourself, lighten up. You're okay. And of course, within all of that, despite some interest in weird stuff and kind of supernatural things, when it comes to it, people have de-supernaturalized this world. No resurrection, no miracles, no virgin birth. And they're rubbish. The gospel. See it as foolishness. The preaching of it, as Paul here calls it, the, the foolishness of God. Well, that's the world looks on it as foolishness. But that is where my final heading leads us, actually where the true wisdom is. True wisdom, not with the world, its reinventing of God after its own image, or its comforting words that you're all okay, don't worry about it. No, it's saying to you instead, You've got a choice to make. You do have a choice to make. You're faced up with the reality of eternity as the gospel holds it forth, and the glory of the Son of God as he is held forth to you and tendered to you. Him, eternal life, the way to God, the only way to God, that, that. Or what the world offers, its wisdom, its thoughts. Do you believe those? really think that those men and those women who write those books know better than God? Do you really think that their own efforts to reconfigure the cross and redesign that so it loses this, this sense of there being sin and God's justice and in punishing sinners, it, it tries to evaporate all that away? Do you really believe that those people know what they're about? Do you really think that their books are wise books? You have a choice to make Corinth or Zion, the world or Christ. For I can say this, that this is true wisdom. You can find there something more about it. I'm not time to say all these things, have I? But in verse 30, there we are. Christ Jesus, you're in him, if you believe, who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. Here's what the wisdom of God is about. Righteousness. That is, God, if we believe in him, will account us righteous. We'll say that we are people who do belong in heaven. And we belong there because we're forgiven. Oh, and we're also clothed in all of the perfections, all of the beauty, all of the glory of his being. All the 33 years of those excellent, wonderful works. Well, God says those I transfer to the sinner and I look upon the sinner as if those works my son had done, that sinner had done them, himself or herself. Isn't that amazing? Oh, and redemption, that we've been brought back, bought back indeed, from our enslavement to sin. There, under that penalty, we couldn't pay for our exit, we couldn't pay for our deliverance. But Lord Jesus Christ did pay, pay the offended law and majesty of God in the entirety of his self-sacrifice on the cross, all paid. There's wisdom of God. And it talks about sanctification, that in Christ, there's life and progress. Oh, choose life, dear friend. If you are there thinking that one day you will be a different person, one day by your own self-effort, self-help, 
mindfulness has taken a knock in recent years. All the books on mindfulness in the bookshops five, six years ago. Why are bookshops devoted to mindfulness? It's sort of stilling your head and trying to improve in that. Well, sure, it does a bit of good in a few places, sometimes, somewhere. But findings were for children, a lot of them, brought no change to them. In fact, made them worse, their behavior. Oh, you can try. Try all of that. It'll fail. It'll fail. The world has no wisdom. Showed it has no wisdom during COVID. and no answer to death there, did it just? Look to the NHS to save us. Fancy health the time. The NHS is trying to kill us by some of its behavior and its activity in these invisible GPs. But here is sanctification because you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe. And you have the indwelling presence. Think of that. The third person of the Trinity. And that means it's going to be changed. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be some journey. And we're going to find more sins that we're going to have to deal with. And we're going to have illumination. Our consciences are going to be woken up where they've been asleep. And they're going to be refined. And we're going to, we're going to see as we've never seen before. And some of that will be uncomfortable. But it will actually be moving us ever nearer and nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that this unchanging God proves himself to be a rock and a fortress to us, a shield and a defender to us. There's a reality in that. This isn't just some kind of nice story we tell ourselves there, we're struggling along, and it's a reality. He proves himself to be that to us again and again in our own personal experience. And you'll find that too, if you trust in him. Peace to the conscience. Oh, that troubled conscience, how much that is behind so many woes in the world. Well, you'll find peace for that. And true self-knowledge, true self-knowledge. All the ways those invisible powers of the sinful nature wreck us. We don't even know that what they're doing to us and give us feelings we don't really understand and, and divert us away from where the reality is. Well, he brings us back to the place we need to be. And we're not controlled by those things, we're actually controlled by him. His word rules, his laws and commandments, they rule within us. And fear begins to lift, and anxieties perhaps then begin to dissolve. I'm not going to promise perfect life for us all here on after. There'll still be things to worry about, and I'm sure we still have anxieties. But some of the triviality of much that we worry about, that goes. And some of the deeper fears that paralyze us begin to dissolve. And that is sanctification. And we realize more and more who we are meant to be because we're losing who we were and putting away the sinful nature and we're being renewed. Our minds are being renewed. How we think about ourselves, how we think about him, how we relate to him, how we relate to each other. And all of it is moving forward. It's moving and becoming more holy, and becoming more filled with love, patience, self-control and all the fruit of the spirit. Friend, is that foolishness? Or is that not wisdom? Is that not the power of God? And does it not all come from the cross? And that which is a stumbling block to the Jews and looks as if it could offer us no hope here. This is dreadful death and sacrifice and blood and crowns of thorns and scourgings. Wisdom of God. And it yields and it yields and it yields. And when the church tries to do her own thing, just invents foolishness, she is wise when she keeps to the wisdom of God. This gospel, its implications, and all that follows from it.
persuaded this morning? Are you convinced? Well, dear friends, if still you have lingering questions, immerse yourself in the Bible. And if you pray, then do pray all the more and earnestly. As you want to know the reality of this, that if anything that I've been saying this morning and other preachers say, and as you read in books that put it better than I can, if you want to know, is this true? You ask the author. You ask the God of heaven and earth. Open your eyes to the glory of your son. And if you're sincere and you really want to know, you'll find out. And you too will join with others of us who sing these hymns of praise. Because yes, he is very precious to us. That gospel, let the world account it foolishness. For us, this was wisdom. And we've never been the same again. And we don't yet know how we'll be changed yet before we reach glory. And we'll be changed then, all right. So what a place, what a day that that will be. So it's time to choose. It is the day of decision. Dear friends, look to this Savior. Look to the one who is the heart of the message of the gospel. Trust in him with all your heart and you will receive the promise of everlasting life. Amen.